Let's join together in the prayer of illumination. Nothing is better than you, Lord. As we get to know you, we know that more and more. And we pray that more and more would know you, more and more people. We think of the kids coming to day camp this week. We pray, Lord, that they would come to know you. We pray, Lord, that those here who are volunteering their time to serve you to the glory of your name would represent you to the children because they're filled with your spirit, because of your work in them, Lord, because of your plans and purposes, and your good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it go forth. May it go forth from this place. And Lord, as we gather to hear your word now, we just pray that we would be attentive to you, that we would be focused on you, Lord Christ, that we would lay aside all that would threaten to interfere and that we would be with you and that you would be in us and that we would receive from you all that you give us and that we would rest in you. Now we look to your word. We're so grateful for it. The scripture reading today is Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
What do you do with sad news? How do you respond? Sad news in the world, sad news locally, something with you or your family. In reading Nehemiah a number of times, last week and this week, it's interesting because he has some understanding of what's happening. And that's part of um, the anxiety that surrounds bad news and, and surrounds life is when it's mysterious, that typically adds to it, you know? When you go visit the doctor and the doctor says, I'll call you on Tuesday and it's Wednesday and then Thursday, that's upsetting. And I think in our culture, we, we want to overthink that and uh, rationalize it away. But when we know... It's less anxiety producing, and yet Nehemiah is responding to this sad news with um, sadness, with fasting, with prayer, even while he knows in some measure why the Israelites were in exile and why he doesn't get to live in his home, why he doesn't get to farm the land that was given to his family, but is instead a servant to a foreign king. There's so much I want to know that we don't know, even though there's a lot of detail in Nehemiah. There's a lot of lists of gates and bolts and doors. But I think it's obvious that the king likes Nehemiah as cupbearer. I was thinking about this, and of course my context is uh, waitstaff at a restaurant. So I wonder if Nehemiah knew when to joke and when not to joke. If you've ever gone out to eat with me, you know I'm terrible at this. I'm, I'm learning to just say nothing. Because my timing is not good. My jokes are mediocre at best. I wonder if he made... So Nehemiah is clearly a very, very passionate person. We'll get to this later. Um, but throughout the book, you just cannot miss the fact that he's passionate about following the Lord and leading others to follow him. Um, sometimes in not great ways. We'll come back to that. So I wonder sometimes if the king got bad news, if he like made noises, you know? You have that friend that you can count on them. You call them and tell them about something challenging going on in their life. And then you go, ugh. I wonder if that is one of the reasons that the king liked him so much. But it is worth noting that there's no leadership potential for Nehemiah if he hadn't been a faithful cupbearer to the king. Does your boss like you? I know it's complicated, I really do. And yet one of the most straightforward ways that we get to be God followers in the world is how we interact with those that have authority or power over us. As uncomfortable as it often is, as unjust as it often is, as imperfect and complicated as it is, it's one of the most regular ways that we live out our faith in the world. Nehemiah is very nervous in this section because he could have been at least fired, if not actually killed, because requesting to leave the service of the king could sound like a lack of allegiance to the king. Nehemiah is very bold and aggressive in a lot of his moves, but he's also a human being, and he was scared. And then he continues in the path that he had 
uh, decided upon through prayer and asking the Lord. A little bit like Ezra and very much like Esther in this time, there are prophets in Israel, but they're not acting the same way that we see them act in Kings and Chronicles, where they'll show up and speak to the king on behalf of God. There are multiple prophets in Israel right now, but we don't hear from them the way that we do in other parts of the book. But we do know that Nehemiah prays, and we do know that he's convicted about what to do. And it's about four months after his prayer that he's before the king, and the king notices that he's upset, and he knows exactly what he has to do, but he's still nervous. And he takes kind of what some people call a breath prayer, and then he asks the king whether he can go. It is risky sometimes to act like a follower of Jesus. At extended family gatherings, when people are gossiping, in your place of business, when you might need to be honest about a mistake that you made, you could cover it up, but you're not going to because you're a follower of God. When someone hurts you and you have the ability to retaliate and you choose to not only not do that but to forgive, that's risky. It really is, relationally and in truth in the world. And that we, we don't have the story of Nehemiah as an example, but we do have the story that we can still see and appreciate and relate to. There will probably be a time this week where you'll be tempted to be silent or redirect away from the truth because it would make your day a little easier. And that's risky because you don't know how the person's going to respond if you own up to the mistake that you made. And yet, that is the opportunity in front of us as followers of God. The faithful cupbearer is then reviled as foreman and governor. A number of months later, he asks the king if he can go to Jerusalem. It's about a two-month walk, by the way. And he goes, and uh, this is when Nehemiah starts to make a lot of lists. And um, those lists might, if you're in your Bible reading plan and you don't want to read those lists, I'm not, you know, what am I going to do about that? But if you're reading them, you'll notice some beautiful things. There are some nobles that stay out of the building. There are some daughters of people that are so passionate they want to be participate in the building. And you'll hear about families and land and memories, and it reminded me of uh, 2020. We were very blessed as a church to have this space, and whether you know this or not, a number of churches could not return to worship for all sorts of reasons, especially those who were renting space. We were able to come back a few months later, after March of 2020, and it was so good. For our hearts, and some of you waited a while for your for personal reasons and family reasons, where all that. Do you remember when you first came back to corporate worship? I hope it was after we started singing together. Remember when we didn't know how to do the singing and we were playing the music? Oh man, I don't know what we will do if this happens again. Roughly in a hundred years, if we're looking at the 1918 to anyway, but I did not like that. We have such talented musical people playing a CD for all of you hurt my heart, but it was so lovely to gather, right? Do you know some of the founders of this church? Some of them are here. When I'm reading Nehemiah and 
you hear about this place in Israel, Mizpah. There's one of the governors of Mizpah. That's where in the Old Testament, um, is it Lot and Jacob that meet? And they have to, they have a conflict in there. Is it Jacob and he's, shoot. But they're greeting, or they're, when they leave, this is how they say goodbye to each other in Mizpah. They say, the Lord watch between me and thee while we're apart one from another. So when an Israelite heard about a governor of Mizpah being repairing a part of the gate, it's this flooding of memories of their story together as a family a spiritual family worshiping God together that was tied to a place. And as the place is being rebuilt, it's very emotional. That's why there's so much weeping and prayer and some in Ezra falling on their face and others praising upright. That's where Nehemiah's passion comes from. And there's opposition from the outside, and it's, it, it, I found it very interesting that we know something about it and not others. The Israelites find out that there's a plot against them, first to stop them from building and then to try and kill Nehemiah. We don't know how they learned of the plot. We don't know what the plot actually is. And then Nehemiah quotes a very important scripture, Exodus 14, when... Um, and he says, our God will fight for us. And this is another reminder of where we are in the story of God. Israel is an uh, occupied state. They are not in charge of themselves. And the reason I say that is, if this had been a couple of books ago, we know that right after this, there's going to be a fight, and it's going to go well for the Israelites. Now, it doesn't mean there's going to be a fight. We don't know that, but we're watching and listening, Nehemiah. And he says, the Lord will fight for us. And then there's no fight. It, the oppression just is thwarted by the savvy, good planning and prayer and worship of the people of God. Of course, for us, and I'm, I'm adapting the most commonly used metaphor in the New Testament for what Jesus did for us, which was fight for us against much worse enemies called sin and death. And there is no fight in this, in this story, and the wall goes up in 52 days. Oftentimes, they were holding a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, which sounds exhausting. But they wanted their place of worship and their home back. And the Lord blessed their work. So Nehemiah is reviled as both the foreman of the work and the governor as he leads the people in worship and remembering and repenting. And I, we talk about worship a lot because it comes up in the scriptures and this is a church, but worship is more than what we're doing together, though it certainly includes what we're doing together. Worship is also our day-to-day -day life and how we respond to our work and our family and the various challenges of it. There's some oppression of the poor in the middle of the story in chapter 5, and Nehemiah says this, or writes this, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. That might seem 
um, like I'm making different points. Part of Nehemiah's worship and leadership of the people of Israel was you cannot oppress your brother and your sister. You cannot make them work for less than the work uh, is worth. Stop it. I also love that he had a meeting with himself. My mom says that sometimes whenever she knows she needs to get over something or she's disproportionately frustrated. She'll say, I had a meeting with myself and this is the conclusion that I came to. Once she said to me, Matthew, I broke all of my fingernails clawing myself to a higher place. (laughs) I don't know if she learned this from Nehemiah, but sometimes it's good to, to use our brain to think about what do we do in this situation. It's good to pray and it's good to use the wisdom that God has given us and then to decide how to act. Worship is very much what we're doing this morning and it's acting like a Christian where you are and where you have influence and power. I know that for most of us, we feel like we have a very small amount of influence and power and I'm certain that that feeling is legitimate and yet God has given you words and hands and skills and gifts and money and people to act like a Christian towards and near. Part of the reason Nehemiah stops the oppression is he knows he's, his Bible. He knows the law of God. Later, he's going to summarize it, in, in my opinion, unhelpfully for many of us because we're somewhat lazy in how we read the Bible. I had to go back to Deuteronomy multiple times because I was troubled by something that he says. But the reason that he stops the oppression here is because he knows that's not God's heart for any human, even outsiders. The, rule, the, the, the rules in the Torah would seem odd to us because we live in a free country. We live in a, in a, in a world not constantly beset on all sides, though there are a lot of conflicts going on in the world. I think something like 90, though most of them not as large as the ones we see on the news all the time. But the laws that they have about how to and not to deal with war and slaves, how to and not deal with foreigners that come into them are life-giving. And Nehemiah knows that because he listened when the priests and the Levites led them through the Torah. He's a passionate listener. He retained what he learned, and it makes him a good leader. He leads the people not only in worship and remembering what God did for them in their past. When he's quoting Exodus 14, he's reminding the people not only of the truth that God fights for his people, but that he did in the past, and that's how they became a people. He also leads them in repentance. Repentance for a A Christian is a regular rejecting of a life of death and choosing life. To use a little bit, um, well, no, this is from Nehemiah also. Christians flee lust and we pursue love. Unlearning this and rejecting it and learning what this is from God and choosing it. We flee idols. And in the New Testament, an idol is a metaphor for something that we ask to deliver in ways that only God can. I'll give you an example. If it is effortless for you to plan the most exquisite vacation ever, you, just, you, would, you would neglect all sorts of other things. 
and it is not even a choice or a thought to pursue this kind of vacation. That's not an idol, but it's a symptom of a kind of life that the world has sold you that you expect to give peace to your heart. And so if you're neglecting your retirement in choosing that, if you're neglecting generosity in choosing that, there's something going on in you that you've been convinced that the only way you can be truly happy is to have this certain kind of life. And the irony, and you know this because you've gone on great vacations before, is it's so restful and wonderful and then you get home and you're tired. You're like, wait a second, why am I still tired? I just had this terrific vacation. Well, it is actually tiring to receive that kind of joy and diversion. And you should take spectacular vacations. That's not my point. But we should watch out for things that we give money and time to effortlessly because somewhere in our being, we're like, maybe that will actually speak peace to my mind and to my heart. Maybe then I will fear and worry less. People of God flee harmful joking, and we learn real friendship. We flee retaliation and pursue forgiveness. And we do this, these are not moves of morality, though they are moral moves. They're moves of love for God who fought for us. They're moves of allegiance to God because he stood in between us and sin and death. They're moves of faith where we trust him, that fleeing those things and pursuing these things is actually a move of life and a move of avoiding death. They're all moves of fidelity to him because he is good and has called us to himself. Nehemiah was not only wise and passionate, he was a little bit awkward. If you read Nehemiah, the last chapter is going to disorient you unless you're just sort of buzzing over it. <laughs> he has to leave for a little while, and again, it's a two-month walk to get back to the king where he's cupbearer, who he agreed he would come back. We don't know how often. So it's a two-month walk and a two-month walk back. During that time, they set up uh, like a special room for one of the priests in the temple of God, and Nehemiah gets really mad, and he throws all the furniture out of the room. And this is where we get to read with some space and sense of humor and creativity because the prophet doesn't say to Nehemiah, go back to the temple and throw all the furniture out of the room. We don't know if that is exactly the right way to handle it. Then people are breaking the Sabbath and Nehemiah gets very upset. And he tells them to quit it and he sets up a system whereby they, are not, they can't break the Sabbath anymore. And then intermarriage problems happen again. And this is so important, and I didn't cover it in my opinion or esteem as adequately as I wanted to last week. How many of you have read the book of Ruth in the Bible? Where is Ruth from? And is she one of the most faithful, beautiful followers of God in all of the Bible? Yes. Is God against intermarriage? No. Is he against a God follower marrying someone of a violent, murderous, idolatrous religion who will not give up that religion to worship the life-giving, alive God. That's what he's against. In Ezra, 
chapter 6, which is about 10 years earlier than this version that I'm going to read to you in just a second because it's very interesting. Ezra points out that in addition to the followers of God worshiping in the Passover, there were many who had become followers of God from the surrounding nations. In Nehemiah, it says this, on that day, this is chapter 13, verse 1, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. If you've read Deuteronomy 23, you know that that's a summary and not exactly what it says. Deuteronomy 23 gives a different timeline for foreigners to leave worshiping the violent and sexually exploitative and murderous gods who weren't alive anyway, learn to worship the one true God, and then after different periods of time, depending on which region they come from, they can enter the family of God. Now, the reason I'm trying to prepare you for this, in chapter 13, verse 23, it says this, and if you read Nehemiah, I expect this to disorient you. If you have a good study Bible, that helps. And if you converse a little bit and know the rest of the Bible, that helps. It says this in verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Sometimes we read the Bible, and because we believe the Bible is the word of God, we're not using our mind to understand all of Scripture. This is not a model of how to confront people. It is what happens to this passionate person who saw his nation exiled to another nation. So he has every right to feel this passionate, but perhaps not to beat and curse and pull out their hair. If you ever see me pulling anyone's hair out, I'll say, but they were having an affair. And you'll be like, so the police are on their way, pastor. And I understand why you're upset. And that wasn't the way to handle it. And I both like telling you that because I think it's an interesting story, though very challenging, but also because I want us to read the entirety of scripture and understand it. A friend has come to me recently, and he, he's asking about the Bible as all of it, the Word of God. Yes. Are there genre changes? Yes. Are most of the people we know about in the Scripture good models? No. There are plenty, especially in this season of Israel's existence, because faithfulness is often born out of suffering. We accept that Nehemiah is awkward, wise, and passionate and probably shouldn't have pulled out people's hair. We can take the book as it is and also note that I believe this is, as is Ezra, a foreshadowing of Israel in a few hundred years when they overcorrect this problem and they add laws to God's laws. And Jesus both says, listen to them, and he pronounces woes on those who would add to God's laws. And I know you've never seen anything like that, like when Christians add to the scriptures. We judge anyone who smokes while we have fried chicken at the picnic. 
we go way beyond Scripture with respect to alcohol, which is a very dangerous substance. But we go way beyond Scripture sometimes. We can do this with modesty. And all of those are wisdom categories. And all of those carry danger. Probably 90% of you know people that have been harmed through abuse of those things. And yet, we don't want to call them laws of God if he didn't institute them. So in Nehemiah's passion and overcorrection of things, or with respect to how he pulled it off, not an overcorrection in the end result, we can see our own tendency to moralism or legalism and our need for Christ to free us not only from ourselves, but even our religiousness. In that, what Nehemiah was attempting to lead the people in was seeking purity. And that's good. It's good to flee sin and receive the ways of God. And in so doing, we are ever vigilant for our pride and religiousness, which would convince us that we're awesome when in fact we're loved by God and it's complicated, but we want to watch out for that religiousness in us that leads to all kinds of destruction. But praise be to God that Jesus fought for us to free us from all of these tendencies, both to sin and to a religiousness which harms. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that you hear the passionate and the not-so-passionate prayers of your people. We praise and thank you that you always remember your people. We thank you for the passionate and imperfect men and women who came before us in faith and ask that you bless us with some measure of passion and also the ability to wisely utilize that in the world. Jesus, we trust and love you and ask that you come alongside us this week as we trust and love you with our actions and words and prayers and lives. Amen.